0: welcome to the start of the second series of beer with darren if you're watching on youtube thank you very much for subscribing and if you listen to the podcast on apple or google thank you for listening now today i am joined by steve carter who has a fascinating background uh, in recruitment but also outside of recruitment uh steve thank you for joining me thanks darren good to be here first question is what are you drinking the very very important question
1: i'm drinking moretti which uh oh. Don't, left behind by one of my posh kids. Definitely uh, being, an Aussie, being an Aussie, don't tell anyone in Australia I'll lose my passport for drinking that.
0: Well, on that subject, I, I have uh, an Aussie friend, just a singular Aussie friend, um, yeah. and he lived in the UK for a little while, and he basically told me that fosters is a sin. If you mention fosters, is that something that's true? If, if you that were that? drinking that's fosters? True.
1: You'll never find an Australian that drinks fosters. We send it over here just for fun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> i don't know a single australian you can't i don't think, think you can buy it in pubs no oh that's Just uh you send to england
0: i have yeah. noticed on their advert, it says um brewed in europe in like really small letters at the bottom
1: yeah it does they brew I, I, they definitely brew more fosters here than in australia well Brilliant. i don't know i don't know anyone that drinks it so
0: well um i'm drinking carlsberg but a danish pilsner they've gone all posh to carlsberg they're trying to uh to be a better beer and actually
1: it's quite nice yeah it's probably the best beer whatever that ad is
0: yeah probably the best beer this is probably the best co- podcast you'll listen to around sales and marketing as well so there you go Good. so I, I really want to um, dig into your background first before we come on to what you're doing now because i think your your experience inside the recruitment industry is is fascinating you've worked with some real household names so i wouldn't if you if you don't mind do you mind give me a bit of your, your background
1: yeah, sure. So it's nearly 35 years long, so that could take the whole podcast. So here's, <laughs> the, here's the short though. I'm an accidental recruiter. So I went to an agency in 1986, uh, now Hayes, but back then was called Accountancy Personnel in Sydney, uh, largely because I wanted a job that paid more than I was doing. I was a trainee accountant um, and they suggested I try out recruitment and it looked really easy. I thought, what, you sit down and talk to people. That can't be that hard. And uh, yeah, went in. My first base salary was nine thousand dollars a year, so about five grand uh, back in eighty six, and went from there. And yeah, so so I was on a desk, and I you know worked my way through. And I've had some you know, I look back in my career and think a, a lot of the dreams that get sold to kids that get into recruitment. Um, that never really materialized. I've actually been the one who had that and has ha- is having that career. You know, I've worked all over the world. Um, I headed up a project for um, setting up the staffing contract, for the Sydney Olympic Games. We had to pitch for that to the Olympic Committee. I set up the very first um, and cut the ribbon on the very first uh, privately owned employment agency in China um, and made a speech in English, and everyone didn't applaud, and the interpreter got a rousing level of applause um you know I've been so fortunate but you know experiences like that I've lived in Singapore twice in the job I've moved here to the UK um you know I've been fortunate to travel I was at one point managing director of Robert Half in the UK Um, uh, have been on the board and the executive team at Morgan McKinley I'm still a shareholder in Morgan McKinley you know and they're a great great group of people there uh yeah and I've been a a very fortunate person and love the industry, you know, but I care deeply about it as well, you know, and what happens to it going forward. So, you know, I've got a long list of, you know, I've probably had that career that people want, but I've been really lucky and been in the right place at the right time. I know
0: exactly what you mean. And uh, it's, it's funny because I obviously I'm not a recruiter. I'm, I mean, in fact, my background isn't sales at all. My background is development. And whenever I speak to other developers, they, they find it absolutely crazy that, the career I had. So I I went from a junior developer to being chief technology officer by the time I was twenty eight. And I don't know if you felt similar, but when I when I hit that pinnacle, I hit that almost almost a ceiling, I actually felt more empty than I'd felt for the whole of my career. I felt like what what what's next? I'm there's got to be more to come. Did you have a similar feeling at that point?
1: Yeah, I have always had sort of slightly adventurous spirit in terms of the career. So when things came up, I usually just said yes and figured it out later and very fortunate. My wife sort of had the same view. Let's just see what happens and make it an adventure. But, yeah, there have been periods where, you know, um, when I left Morgan McKinley um, or left, you know, I'm still a shareholder but left employment there, I guess I got to a point there where, you know, I started feeling that there were people on the way through the organisation that, you know, I was kind of blocking their path and I'd always been fortunate that people had given me opportunity. And to move out of the way was it was a good time for me to do something new because i felt like i hit that wall um but also it was good because there were some really talented people that deserved an opportunity and i was just in the way and it's a strange feeling like you know you think you're still good enough to play but you also realize there's someone faster and better than you that wants your job so you know i'd rather step out than get pushed out so yeah yeah i've been, I've been there before but i i'm I'm curious, you know. I'm always pushing new areas and trying to find new ways to do things. So that keeps me kind of, you know, active, I guess, and interested, and in, you know, trying to keep me current.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and over the the span of that career, I think you said thirty five years. Um, yep. how's the shift between marketing and sales happened? Because if I think back to ten years ago. I don't, I don't think marketing was taken very seriously in the recruitment industry. Is that something that you saw change over your time there?
1: Oh Yeah, hugely. Um, and, it's, it, you know, like it's not a shock. It's just tied in heavily with things like social media and, um, you know, the fact that your brand is visible, you need to be trusted. And people have the opportunity to assess your brand before they engage you in a sales process. They can check your own personal brand out before they engage you in a sales process. So marketing really leads from the front. You know, if you if you don't have that level of trust that you've built up through whatever you put online or, you know, from an individual point of view to a company, or you never get the deal done on the sales side anymore. You know, people have a lot of choice. People buy services in a different way. You know, they buy stuff of Amazon. You know, they buy stuff, you know, Netflix. You know, the world's changed completely and therefore recruitment's no different, you know. And a lot of people in recruitment, always give me the excuse it's recruitment like we're different the recruitment's part of a b2b b2c sales supply chain or you know service supply chain so your brand's absolutely critical people need to trust you they need to know what you're about they can check you out before they ever speak to you so no marketing strategy no brand no sales
0: absolutely perfect and it's it's music to my ears to hear somebody say it because for so long people just didn't think they needed marketing. You know, marketing wasn't a thing. Um, I, I, and also with what's happened in the world right now, we're seeing two mindsets amongst business owners. You've got people that are going back and saying, right, we don't need marketing spend. Let's cut that. Let's get rid of the marketers. And everybody hit the phones again. Um, and I think that's a very naive view to have. I think actually in the longer term, they're going to have more of a damage impact on their business. Is that something well, you'd agree with? or?
1: Well, it's not naive. It's just wrong. Like it's 100% wrong. Not even close. You know, if I started an agency today, the first two people I'd hire would be someone to look after data and someone to look after marketing. Then I'd worry about consultants after that. The second thing that's wrong with that attitude is that going backwards and just bashing the phone and trying to sell people things they don't want to buy in a market like this particularly, but even before lockdown that's just the short road to failure, you know. In the UK, there's what seven, an average of seven thousand startups in the industry a year. Eighty percent failure rate. Eighty percent of the businesses in the sector have less than ten people. They never achieve scale, and that's because they just bash the phone, no strategy, no plan, no contemporary thinking. Like you know, people don't buy stuff that way. You know, the the agencies, agencies that do that don't understand buyer behaviour and how people have changed the way they do things. And, you know, it's usually middle-aged guys like me that run those businesses um, that are just grandparenting the knowledge that they got back in the 80s and they just keep pushing it down line. But, you know, Gen Z, 25% of the workforce of Generation Z. They don't even know a phone is a phone. They think a phone is a camera that's got a phone attached to it. <laughs> so the idea that you can still sell the same way you did in 1990 in 2020 is ludicrous you know
0: absolutely absolutely and the point and,
1: of... and water. Yeah,
0: that's crazy I, I love the passion that you have for this subject and and you yep. mentioned at the start that you want to to help to change what recruiters do what agencies are seen as what do you mind talking me through what you're what you're up to now so i know you've got a fantastic past but i think actually you've got a really interesting future as well
1: yeah i mean pre a long time before lockdown you know i guess i've always been slightly um You know, I've always been looking for new ways to do things and, um, you know, I've had the good fortune, I guess, to work in different parts of the world, which sort of open your eyes to how people see recruitment differently, like the way the US see it, the way Australia see it, the way Asia sees it, it's very different. The UK is a very mature, you know, overbrokered market to some extent. So I've always been looking at new ways to do things and really looking at, you know, start asking myself questions like why do 80% of agency startups fail? why do we all sort of joke about the fact that recruitment's kind of got this re- you know slightly smelly reputation um, then started looking at why do certain companies stand out as employers of choice you know what's so good about google and netflix and spotify and unilever and all these amazing companies that people really want to work for and why do the recruitment companies have 30 40% attrition and you know what well, it just didn't make sense so Started doing a lot of research, and actually, what I've been able to, what I guess what I'm heavily into at the moment is I've adapted Agile, which is you know you're you're our next techie So, you know, Agile as a Agile as a concept fits so well in recruitment, and I've started adapting Agile frameworks and actually dropping them into recruitment companies and getting away from a lot of the traditional stuff. Like commission is a non-runner for me. You know, it doesn't work. You know, it sounds better than it is. A few people get it. Most people don't. Average earnings in the UK last year in recruitment, not much over 40K. You know, so recruitment's a myth. A commission's a myth, sorry. It, it doesn't really work. You know, teams, people confuse team spirit with teamwork. You know, it's good to have a beer with a team, but they don't work together. They're all individuals. They'd rather lose business and share it with the guy at the next desk. You know, yeah. that sort of stuff's wrong. So Agile is something that I really believe strongly has a place in recruitment. And, you know, I'm on a bit of a run to try and help people adopt some more agile-based frameworks that they can put in. So that's something I'm really keen on, and I think it's a way forward. You know, and and again, I just don't – people get paid on outcomes. They should get paid on delivery of process. And a lot of those agile principles really, really work. So, yeah, I'm quite excited about the impact that could have.
0: Absolutely, and I'm a big fan of Agile. Every every tech business I've ever overseen, and, and Pager itself runs Agile. Um, yep. what, what's the impact? What's the successes that you've seen in some businesses where you've managed to actually change the mindset and implement those processes?
1: Yeah, it's been interesting watching it evolve. So, where you've got where you've got 360 and Agile in the same environment, in the same office space, you know, pre lockdown and now post. You know, it's interesting that people in 360 kind of thought they were the A-team and Agile were kind of the job fillers. And now there's this kind of, you know, there's a more than curiosity about how do I get onto an Agile group? You know, they they have more fun. Uh, they work collaboratively. They use kind of cool tools and technology to do it. Um, yeah, that's been important. I think the, the proposition of the client's better, you know. That when a client knows that, there's a level of commitment to the customer that they're going to get a whole team work a vacancy based on the strengths in the team and they're going to throw everything at it, including the kitchen sink. You know, when you get to sell, it's a much better proposition. Clients are more involved in the process. Yeah, that you know, there's nothing, you know, there are elements to it that people find difficult. Like agile teams that I've helped set up, you know, everybody gets paid the same. You know, if, they, if the team hit an efficiency of, say, fill rate, everybody gets the same bonus. They don't get paid on fees. They get paid on delivery. And of, how of, hard was yeah. that
0: adjustment for people? How hard was it to, to get people bought into that way of way of working?
1: Oh, for some people, they weren't, you know, never going to happen. That's crazy stuff. And, you know, but for those that embraced the idea, and it was usually the people that had really good process orientation that just weren't that strong at business development, and they were good at filling jobs when they got them. And they were well up for it because they realised the strength was actually their skills and somebody else's actually combined to make a better proposition. So actually the, the mid-tier, the neglected people in recruitment, if you think about typical agency, and I'm generalising, but you know, if you bill a lot of fees, you can kind of do what you want. If you bill low or average levels of fees, you're probably at risk the whole time. But actually when you look at people and the way they work, some of the people that generate low to mid-level fees are actually very good at quality. They're very good at delivery of a process, but they just don't have the number of jobs on to to show that. So you end up getting rid of people that are the best at the job. And, you know, the idea that a big biller, what, fill rates on perm, 20 25% probably? Well, you know, if you owned a factory and 75% of what you put in at one end got scrapped, you'd go out of business. But recruitment companies don't focus on waste; they focus on just get more jobs in, just get more candidates registered, and basically fail your way to success, which makes no sense. It's so expensive for owners and directors. You know, like if you could get a forty percent, if you could take a twenty percent fill rate to thirty percent fill rate, you'd increase net fee income by fifty percent.
0: Oh, it's, it's very interesting because it's similar to the conversations we have internally. So. Um, flipping it around to the SaaS model, obviously Pages is yes. a SaaS platform, so we recognise that the cost of a customer acquisition is far greater than just keeping a customer happy. Now, if we can keep the customers we have, it, yes. it's the best way forward. You know, if you have a leaky bucket, you're you're pretty much screwed because all you're doing is topping up the same bucket and you're working extra hard. So yes. we we concentrate first on current customers because that then leads to referrals, which we know that referrals have a, a, a quicker close time. They're more likely to come on board. They're more likely to stay with us. They've got a longer customer lifespan with us. And it's all because you concentrate on what you've got rather than try to get more.
1: Yeah, and it goes to your point, like, sending the guys out there to make more phone calls. Why? Have a look inside. Like, you know, all the data that agencies have gives you a lot of the answers to the questions about sector strength, you know, the type of job role strength, individual consultant strengths, they don't look at the data. So they have all these great CRMs and ATS systems that are just giant expensive £70 a month filing cabinets. You know, you use the data. <laughs> like, you know, they buy the sexiest kit and don't use any of it. Yeah, exactly. And they more money to buy an analytics tool to sit over the top of it. So the per desk investment's like 140 quid a month, and they still don't look at it. <laughs> you know, just buying stuff doesn't make you better at your job. You might as well go and look at the data. You know, yeah, absolutely. The box. I I can't remember the exact
0: stat, but I think it was something crazy like um I think it was around sixty percent of candidates that people place already exist in the CRM and they're yeah. paying for job boards to get them to apply for new jobs, um, rather than just yeah. doing email marketing okay. to the CRM.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, because I I sort of enjoy exposing some of the deficiencies, but that's a classic where, you know, you go and see how many times people register with an agency responding to an ad when they already had them. It, you know, it's every almost every time. There's not many unique candidates. You no, know, and Especially it, as we get
0: more niche, and I think yeah. recruitment agencies are getting more and more niche to the point where you're no longer a tech recruiter, you're a Python recruiter, and you're no longer a Python recruiter, you're a data science Python recruiter. So I, I agree yep. that the talent pool is limited and you should be able to map your markets quite well and have them all in your database pretty quickly.
1: Absolutely, and that's where you develop a trusted insider status because people aren't stupid, right? If you're a recruiter who's just a vulture hovering around the outside, they don't let you in the club. But if you become knowledgeable about a market, you become a trusted insider, you're welcome because everybody needs a connection in recruitment sooner or later, whether it to be higher to hire or whether it to be get a job. So you've got to earn the right, and that's where the brand comes in again. If you've got a brand where you push good content to the market um, individually or collectively as a company where you're not all about recruitment all the time but you're just helping improve the wider knowledge in the group, you'll get invited into the inner circle of that, that community and you'll become trusted, you know, and then you become really effective as a recruiter. You can't play the game from the dugout. You know, you've got to get in, in the game. And the way to do that is to be a specialist, be an expert.
0: Absolutely. And if we just come back to the, the top pillar. Now, the reason I want to come back to it is because yep. every time I speak to a marketer inside a recruitment agency, the person they struggle most to get to buy into their marketing strategy, to so actually share the content they're producing, the white papers, the salary surveys, I think they're spending thousands and thousands of pounds on, is mm-hmm. always the top pillar. Um, yeah. And it's a certain arrogance, I believe, where then like, I don't need to do it because I'm the top bidder. What It's also very selfish because I also believe as a top biller, it means you've been in the company probably some time. You've got the most connections on LinkedIn in your industry. And if you were to share something that your colleagues were recruiting for, the business could make more money. What advice do you have to a, a marketer on how to deal with that situation, but also yeah. to any CEOs that might
1: be listening? Well, and I'm going to generalise here because there are some really high-quality people that bill a lot of fees, you know, and they do it the right way and they're experts in their market. So I'm not I'm not mean, I don't mean those people, but I mean the kind of diva-like, you know, uh, billers that they're the ones that cause the marketing people and the owners and directors a problem. And you either treat them like an outlier, and so if they don't want marketing, don't give them any, but don't stop giving that support to other people. You know, if they want to fly alone, and largely it's because they don't want to expose the inefficiency of how they operate. You know, they either have a major account that just keeps feeding them or, you know, they might be good on the chat and they happen to, you know, have a really good network. But at the end of the day, I imagine when they dig in, they'll find a lot of waste. Um, no better time than the present. You know, big big billers, not of the, the quality sort, but the, the kind of um, the noisy ones. This is a tough time for them, you know. They're not a big biller anymore. No one's a big biller anymore. and The playing field's completely level. So, you know, if they can rekindle that, fair play. But they're going to be the people that struggle most because they don't really graft. They kind of got the momentum going. So if I was the marketing person, I'd just ignore them, do what's right, and, you know, they have no say, you know, and too many agency owners bend over for those guys because they make them a lot of money. But actually, they also cost them a lot of money, and they usually are in have their finger in high staff attrition, uh, lack of teamwork. They're usually pretty selfish, uh, and you know, again, if you look at agile frameworks, those people, you know, they either they either figure it out and join the team or get out. So you know, they're bit, they're expensive to have. They they just cost you more than they make you really, when you look at it. And I know that's kind of the exaggerated example, but Marketing people shouldn't be intimidated by recruiters. They're all part of the same team. They're all trying to get the same end game. They should all have a common purpose. It's not a game about one individual or two individuals. It's about the wider business. And if owners want to create shareholder value, then they need to get their head around that. One person, you should never build around a person and that one person is not going to create shareholder value because if someone did come to buy their agency one day, they understand that's a one-off. Looking at the mechanics of the wider business, you know, the meatier part, how does the whole thing move? Not to how do a couple of individuals make you money. They're not interested. So, yeah, ignore, ignore them.
0: So for, for any CEOs listening, if you've got a couple of big bidders, they're going to actually affect your exit strategy. So it's worth getting them on team and getting everyone working as a team. Yeah,
1: they have to play the game like everybody else, you know, because you can't, like if you buy a company and that person is just a one-off outlier like that, Well, you know, or two of them, can leave you in a minute so you don't count it (laughs) like it's interesting revenue but it's not it's not what you're after you're after the sustainability of the business while they're just just passing through anyway usually
0: yeah before they start their own agency this is what we typically see, right
1: yeah yeah and then they become one of the seven thousand, you know that start up every year yeah it's a crazy crazy lifestyle cycle actually and
0: on the, on the subject of how you'd improve an agency, that something that's close to, to my heart, your heart, is is diversity. Yeah. Um, and if we're being honest, as an industry, recruitment can do a lot to improve. You know, putting it out there, we, we can definitely do a lot to improve. What are your thoughts on that? Obviously, I think it's improved a lot over the last 20 years anyway, but uh, what have you seen and what's the journey you've been on?
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, statistically, recruitment you know this is from an APSCO, and i can't give you the exact numbers but from an APSCO report last year that you know our industry falls well behind acceptable standards on gender diversity at management and board level just as an example um but back a couple of years ago you know i'm very uh, as a person i don't like inequality i don't like people being treated unfairly and uh, very frustrated by the lack of diversity in recruitment and tried to speak to people I know that I really love and they're good friends of mine that run businesses in recruitment and suggested they look at different talent pools because everyone was complaining about they couldn't find staff, couldn't find consultants and you know there's some very talented people out there you know for example say with disability that just didn't get a run and uh, anyway I failed so I decided to start a business with a Paralympian called Liz Johnson uh, who's a bit of a force of nature in her own right, gold medal in Beijing and you know, a very visible member of that community and we started a business called The Ability People or TAP as everyone calls it and, uh, you know, we started consulting into, we started off with recruitment companies because that's the industry I knew and we got absolutely nowhere. Just, you know, it was... Oh, really? That's sad. Nowhere, yeah. So now we consult to people at HSBC, Chelsea Football Club, um, lots of really good blue-chip organisations around um, disability inclusion. Um, And about a month ago, we launched a platform called Podium, which is the world's first accessible freelancer marketplace. And so people with disability can put their profiles on there and hirers of those people can connect with them directly at no cost. And, you know, we created that platform to do that and that's been amazing. So, yeah, I'm really passionate about inclusion because I think if you get inclusion, you get diversity as a result. But I don't think it works the other way around. Um and everybody should be welcome in our sector and everybody should have a chance, you know, to do it. And you know, I've met so many amazing people and yet there's just still not visible enough in the recruitment sector, they're they're not a force and they should be. So yeah, it's something we've got to do as an industry.
0: Absolutely. Without without digging into names or anything like that, I don't expect naming and shaming. But when you were during the I imagine there was a sales process because I'm sure you don't do everything for free what yep. were the what were the objections why didn't they buy into it what was the reasoning
1: that no, well to be honest they didn't there's, there wasn't an objection to it it was just and and again i should be i should be fair i mean and balanced this is not just recruitment it's just i started with recruitment and found that there was a level of apathy or the process was broken you know it wasn't an inclusive process uh and people you know it's not a mystery if you walk into recruitment agencies it's Pretty similar kind of population, um, and so we find that in mainstream industry as well. It's just the process is broken. So we flipped from what we were doing and actually focus very much on process change. So, you know, for example, we give you well, good example. I know the answer, but how many recruitment agencies have accessible websites?
0: I honestly have no idea. I imagine not, not many.
1: No, I mean I know less than ten. There might be more. That's not hard to do, but an accessible website means by not having that. How many job boards are accessible? Well, not many. If uh, two, I know of, and LinkedIn's not accessible. That's crazy. So, yeah, right, and LinkedIn's owned by Microsoft, <laughs> right, yeah. which has built-in accessibility kit in Windows, but LinkedIn's not accessible. Makes no sense. I've been over to the US and met with LinkedIn. They've had people come and meet us in London to talk about it. But there's always something higher on the agenda.
0: So and I imagine I imagine the thing higher on the agenda is driving revenue, um, which is unfortunately yeah. the, the way of the world, right? And yeah, it it's, is uh, sad situation.
1: About things like agile, you know, purpose before profit.
0: Mm.
1: You know, if you have a purpose, you'll get the profit. You know, um, it's a short life if you're just chasing down that. But things like accessible websites, recruitment agencies don't. You know, we're talking about them. That they don't know how to process someone who is slightly different, who doesn't fit into the same category. You know, who doesn't, who might need a different style of approach to interview, or you know, submits an application in a different way. They're only set up to parse CVs in a certain way. You know, they're only set up to interview in a certain way. Now, what's interesting with with COVID, you know, things like Zoom and Skype and you know, all the various video tools that are out there, teams, it's leveled the playing field to some extent. So, you know, an agency that you know, there's no reason now why they can't interview someone who's at home. Why do they need, you know, if the person chooses not to disclose, they wouldn't know? You know, and mental health, for example, is like the single largest uh, disability. And statistically speaking, we know that, you know, it affects such a large proportion of the population. So recruitment companies have done more in mental health, I'm glad to say, than other types of disability. But, you know, they've shown they can be adaptable and they can deal with issues like that. But, you know, there's still work to do. And there's some amazing people out there. Do you think,
0: do you think it's a way to differentiate? Because every recruitment agency I speak to have got the same USPs I know it sounds crazy, they've all got the same USBs, which means they're not USBs at all. Do you think actually, if people were smart, they could be the first ones to actually change and that would actually give them a USB?
1: Of course, I mean, you know, there's no reason why individual agencies can't have their own unique personality and style. You know, and you only have to read their websites or, you know, interview recruitment consultants to tell us how much they care about their customers, you know, and all the sort of cliches you know, and how candidate care is critical. I mean, read 10 recruitment websites, you've read them all. Um, You know, uh, the reality is that there is an opportunity for people to be different. You know, for example, not just around diversity, but, for example, pricing strategies. There's no innovation around pricing whatsoever. (laughs) And when you think about other, other products and services, there's been massive innovation around pricing. You know, um, and, you know, we just seem to, you know, the people say, well, you know, when I started, a permanent fee was 30%. And now it's probably, I don't know, 15, you know, in the teens, somewhere high teens, and people are quite offended. But actually, you know, we've got so much more technology that means we should be able to deliver that service a lot more efficiently. We should be managing margin, not worrying about 15%. How do i do 15 and make it a profitable 15 percent with all the technology and all the sort of stuff but recruitment we're still focused on having a posh office you
0: know yeah, like I, actually I, I know exactly what you mean you know,
1: yeah you know we're just focused on the wrong stuff and i'm generalizing there's lots of really good people out there that do it the right way and it's easy for me to throw stones right because i don't have a proper job anymore but you know um fact is you know like you said you, you know it's, it's a very typical environment the usps are there to be had you know um but people don't go hunting them down because we grandparent this legacy process that exists through so many agencies well you know of kpis heavy you know commission um you know email marketing you know power hours you know all the sort of stuff that goes on BD, you know whatever people call it. You know that it hasn't changed much. Not since 1986 when I started. It's just you know we've just got a lot more technology on your desk, but it's still the same process.
0: And that, that's an interesting matter. point around the technology because a lot of the business owners I talk to say to me when I, I'm investing in all this technology, you know Pager being one of them. They say right, you you know it's going to make me more efficient. It's going to save me time. It's going to do all of these things. Yet they still make the same amount of profit per recruiter, if that makes sense. Why do you think that is? Why do you think they've, they're spending more on technology, they've increased efficiency, they've saved time across the building, but they're still making the same profit they used to make in 1986?
1: God, there's a lot, there's quite a few reasons, but one of them is, you know, for example, for them to buy Pager or to take that on board um, is like a major decision but it should be a no-brainer. But if a consultant from a competitor walked past the front door, it would take them no time at all to hire that person on a much more significant cost than your product, and that person has less certainty about performance than Pager does about delivery. So why is that? And So the reason they don't deliver the levels of profitability or efficiency are because most recruitment agencies can't resist hiring another person. So the efficiency they gain, they just go spend it on another headcount. And so one of the inefficiencies is, you know, that the play, you know, there's a lot of inefficiency around the human capital side of recruitment. Like how many people to do so much output? Given that you've improved all the technology, why does it take more people to do less? Um, the way people get paid, why does it cost fifty to sixty percent of an agency's net fee income to run people? On the basis they hope they get a fee at the end of the, enough fees at the end of the month to cover that off. So it's like this big bang theory. Every month, all the cost is there, and you ramp it up, and you every time you touch a job, you add more cost to it, and then you hope you fill it, and you only fill one in four or one in five. So the reason they don't make more profit is because there's no process efficiency gain out of the technology, you know. CRM systems, you know, most agents have got tens of thousands of records in there. Like you said, some of them are the same people they've met three times. They use middleware to post jobs on job boards. Um, and those, that piece of middleware, it's chock full of candidates that have never actioned. And then they put analytics tools on top of that to understand what's going wrong. You know, they just keep layering stuff on top of each other. And then, you know what, go and hire a 30 grand consultant because they said they build 400 grand down the road last year or a 50 grand consultant, you know. (laughs) Like, you know, they have to stop and think, break it all down and understand what they've got and how do you make it more efficient. And, you know, you and I work with a company in common and, you know, I think they are definitely on the right track with their tech stack and how it works, how it integrates together, how they make the technology work together and not just be standalone bits of fashionable kit, but actually how how does one enable the other? How do they feed each other? How does it produce data they can use to actually direct the human talent in the business to the right place at the right time? But it's just hire another consultant. So, yeah, until agencies stop and take a view and strip it back, you know, they all live, you know, a lot of them live fairly hand-to-mouth, you know. Like yeah. not not a lot of cash reserves. You know, if I've had a good month, go hire two more people. Which yeah. is which is scary because if,
0: if if COVID showed us anything is cash reserve, cash is king. You should be you should have a healthy bank account if you yeah. want to get through because you know, people are talking about two thousand and eight and the people that got through it were the people that had cash reserves, they invested in marketing and they really bounced back. And I'm seeing people doing the same, but also people doing the opposite, and it's really sad to see.
1: Yeah, it's, look, it, recruitment's a business. You know, it's not, it's recruitment. Like, it's some sort of unique, you know, um, ecosystem that no one knew. You know, it, it's exactly like any other service business. And other industries have changed completely. You know, like, I know it's not related, but, you know, Netflix started out as Love Film, didn't it? They used to post videos to you at your house, you know, and then ended up, you know, it all became this online, you know, streaming service and okay things evolve i don't think recruitment's going to go to netflix anytime soon but you know when you buy all this technology why did you buy it what are you going to do with it how do you sweat the asset how do you get the most out of that technology because it's completely scalable it's completely sustainable it doesn't take a day off it doesn't get sick it doesn't get hangovers it works as hard on a sunday as it does on a monday you know, you got you got all these great CRM systems, CV parsing tools, you know, job posting portals. You got analytics tools. You know, people need to understand what they've paid for. You know, and get it working. You know, not just sitting there. It's not decorative. You know. Yeah. Um,
0: and then, out of all of those tools, is there have you got a go to? This is the tool you must have in recruitment, or does it depend
1: on the business? It depend, depends on the business because, you know, what I what I don't want to underestimate is the importance of the people as well. But, you know, I just think when you look at people's user proficiency around the technology, you know, and how they, um, you know, there's such a small percentage of the capacity of any CRM gets used. You know, most of them have really sophisticated marketing front ends where they can communicate with people pretty proactively but not many people use it um so not you know they they all have pros and cons you know um and by the way i'm not saying this because you and i are quite new to each other but uh, the client that actually referred me to you and i actually am a customer myself um you know they're getting great success from pages so you know it's quite it's quite interesting you know that you know as a product relatively new to me i'm hearing about it a lot but you know, there are other good things. You know, there are people that I, you know, I won't mention that certain systems I like that are CRMs because they're simple and they do exactly what they're meant to do. Um, seen some really new stuff coming out of the US as well. I try to keep up on some of the tech and some of the new stuff that uses AI and other stuff, it's frightening. You know, it, it's beyond what I've seen before. And I think some of that, you know, some of it front end. I, I must get, I don't know three, four pitches a week, people want to talk to me about this new piece of technology that's going to change the world of recruitment, and I've stopped looking because some of them are really sexy front ends. Like a website looks, wow, and then you realise there's nothing behind it. So, um, yeah, I, I don't look that often, but some of the stuff I have been persuaded to look at, I think there's some pretty spectacular stuff on the runway, you know. Brilliant. And I,
0: I look forward to seeing how recruitment changes a result. Um, I think I think that's pretty much all we've got time for. I'm nearly out of beer. Um, is there
1: anything you'd like to add? No, you know, I'm really optimistic about the sector. You know, in spite of the fact I sound like some sort of the Grinchy-style Christmas, you know, um, I'm very optimistic about the sector, but I do think the sector's got a responsibility. You know, it provides a livelihood and an income for a lot of families. Um, it's an industry where if it adds a lot of value, it has so much meaning to candidates and clients as a, as a as a change agent in terms of helping organizations move forward and you know i just think there's so much good work we can do but we're just stuck in the past and you know we've got to break out of that thinking we've got to try and break away from getting our advice only you know and i'm an industry insider so i understand people can level that criticism at me but you know i think you know people should explore what's out there learn from other industries look at companies you know that you think wow what do they do Why are their people so happy? Why does no one ever leave Google? You know, why do they want to work there? You know, um, what is it about the culture of those businesses? Because we've got talented people in the industry. We've got really exciting young talent in the industry. You know, give those people some space. You know, let them have a go. You know, it's not, it shouldn't be an industry dominated by, you know, the kind of 90s, get on the phone, are you hard enough, let's go drink beer. You know, we're just better than that. So, you know, now's the time let's
0: uh, and let's drink to that one last drink uh on that note because i think marketing is changing recruitment and if everything happens that we speak about diversity inclusion everything we spoke about in the next 10 years we can both be very happy cheers cheers